Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing and those that came before it, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discussed today will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're going to be discussing Sansa 2, Ned 7, and Tyrion 4 of A Game of Thrones. How are you doing, Michael? Hey, Dan, I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Okay, I'm I'm in kind of excruciating pain here. I uh, pain. I don't think I have ever taken like a stovetop pan and put oh. it in the oven <laughs> and then not grabbed it barehanded. Like a hundred percent of the time, I do that while cooking. I will take it out of the oven, forget, and within thirty seconds, grab it full on. Well, this feels like a spoiler. It's late in this chapter we're about to talk about that Sandor Clegane talks about his burn. I know his pain. Yeah, you know, well, you're it's definitely exactly the same. You guys do have a similar looking face. Oh, ouch. Ooh, burn, also, literal each, burn. Each, each caused by our brothers. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Hey, spoilers. We're not there yet. Uh, sorry to hear you burned yourself. I, it's okay. uh, I, can I offer have a... some whiskey with an ice cube in it. And I'm so just holding smart. it in that hand. A <laughs> little bit of advice. Maybe stop grabbing burning things from the oven with bare hands. Horrible idea. Terrible advice. Uh, well, we've got a lot to get through today. Yeah, this is uh, this, these are a lot of interesting chapters, man. Things are happening, and I also wanted to follow up on something I had brought up on the last episode. I was asking about, like, hey, you know, here, here, you know, should I know from the clues that are out there information? And uh -huh. you were saying, you know, maybe you know you've read the books a few times. Obviously, you know where things are going. Um, and things will fall into place. So I did want to, I want to like, like foreshadow that a little bit, because I will want to talk a little bit more about some more predictions that I'm having as we okay. get through some of the things we're talking about. And, and a little bit of, uh, you know, fist shaking at George R.R. R. Martin, because I think I think he's out here to trick me. I think he's trying to give me some red herrings. <laughs> All right. So I, I like am that. I am like ready. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So and, and I and I really want to stress too that I was I was actually listening to our last episode earlier uh earlier this week that's and, cheating well, you can't study it? for your tests well <laughs> but all i mean to say is that that last episode i guess to anybody who's listening if you haven't listened to last episode there's a lot of good insight and information dan that you were offering and a lot of pieces that started to really fall together for me as i was reading these chapters so really excited about last week's conversation really excited for this week's where are we starting who are we starting with We've got uh, Sansa 2 is the Sansa next chapter we're going two. with here. Yeah, I so have last opinions time, about Sansa. Yeah, you do. Uh, I hate those <laughs> opinions, but we'll but get to that. But you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so last time we did two two episodes. Ned is continuing with his, his mystery hunt. He mm -hmm. uh, had a meeting with the small council uh, where they talked about the upcoming tournament. And then he went... Uh, and rode out to go talk to some of the last people who saw John Aaron before he died, some of the members of his household. Uh, one of the people who talked to John Aaron right before he passed was an armorer. So he went and checked that out and found that an apprentice at this armory at the blacksmith is one of King Robert's bastards. Uh, and then bastards. we had Catelyn's chapter, which was her in the Riverlands. She happens to run into Tyrion at the inn at the crossroads and ends up taking him hostage captive uh she arrests him with the help of a bunch of other people and that's where that left off 
I'm sorry for those who can't see my face right now, which is anyone listening. I am sm grinning ear to ear because everything I ever said about Catelyn last chapter, I stand behind a million percent more after reading the Tyrion chapter we're about to at the end of this uh, episode today. So well, we'll excited, get we're to get ahead of ourselves excited here. to get there. That's right. That's right. Um, so you're right. We start with Sansa too, and uh, we're now at the the tournament, the King's Tourney, the Hands Tourney, the Hands Tourney, crucially. whatever. Uh, but it is, and and I really want to stress too, because I know we've talked about this before, and and I think that it really shows up here in Spades, which is these chapters are from the characters' perspectives. This is Sansa's chapter. Sansa loves the glitz and the glam. Sansa is so excited to not just be here and be entertained, but as well as to be a lady here and, and to kind of step into her role. And it shows. And that's kind of a lot of what this perspective is through a lot of this chapter. She's watching the tournament loving what she's seeing and working really hard and being proud in her education from Septim Ordain, who yeah. is sitting right next to her. And Septim Ordain seems pretty proud with, with Sansa as well. Yeah, I mean, this definitely looks good for her. I, I think she loves the glitz and glam also with Sansa, mm. and that's for sure. Mm. Um, but one thing that is kind of a repeated theme in the front of this chapter is, and we saw this in her first one too, she thinks of things through the lens of the songs and the stories that she really loves. And it it, it kind of makes me think of uh, the the pretty famous quote from The Office where Ed Helms's character is like, uh, how do you know you're in the good old days before they're gone or something along those lines? Huh, okay. You know, like Sansa, everything she's mm. looking at here, she's thinking, what's the song about this going to be? Or in a certain instance, what won't it be? You know, nobody's yeah. going to ever talk about this again. Uh, and so it's interesting because she she's a kid, she's experiencing this and she's really loving it and taking it in. But it's it's fictional. It's removed for her. It's not mm. something real and concrete, which I think is where some of the difficulty with reading her character for the first time comes in. She's she's not engaging with the world in a, a tangible, realistic sense in the way that somebody like Ned is. Right. That's that's really fair. I I also think, too, speaking about stories and songs, there was a little parallel that I started to pick up that I maybe even projected here, but actually between Septim Ordain and Old Nan, uh, just okay. that these are both women. There's actually a particular part where, uh, you know, Septa as as Sansa and her friend, who I want to ask about in a second, but Jane, uh, Janie Poole, Jen Poole, um, I'll come back to her in a second, but Sansa and her friend are sitting and watching this tournament and they're kind of gawking and having a great time with all these people coming in and they start to mock somebody. And Septim Ordain says, hey, let me tell you a story about this person. They actually climbed a wall with a sword of fire. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, right. They're, these are just as much as you were just talking about Sansa, you know, thinking about this in what stories they are to come. We do have some characters, Septim Ordain here with us, as well as old Nan, as, Nan, as we've seen with uh with Bran uh as people who are the conveyors of these stories uh yeah. and just how powerful stories can be yeah that's a, a great segue into the beginning of this chapter because Septim Ordain is talking about events obviously that have happened more recently and you know I'm sure some of those have produced the songs but generally speaking what Sansa is thinking back on we saw this in her last chapter with the stories she cited to are these kind of old mythical tales that have definitely you know the famous romances whatever it might be and so Septim Ordain is very much so playing into that instinct that Sansa has to think about what's happening now that people are going to be talking about what's going to be on TMZ tomorrow yeah and on her way to the tournament we just get just this long list of knights who are participating um, yeah I'm not going to bring up everybody but I wanted to highlight some of the names here 
uh, that she passes by. So she starts off, she talks about the Kingsguard all in white uh, with Jamie included. He's wearing his white cloak and his gold armor. Jamie is so dreamy. Right? He is. Jamie is is a dreamboat. But this fits in with Bran's thought process. You know, these are this institution is so chock full of the people that these stories are about that you look at them and you see the shining white the purity the uh the the gleaming style that they have and Mm. you go straight you jump straight to these stories that bran was telling us about yeah next we have uh sir gregor clegane comes up for the first time he's referred to Mm -hmm. as the mountain that rides and uh, the hound's brother that's right older brother uh, we also have a couple of of more minor houses brought up. Lord Yon Royce, uh, he's Waymar's dad, and we've actually heard him mentioned before. Uh, and there's this reference: he wears ancient bronze armor with magic rune, runes on it. Uh, we get another reference to Lord Jason Malister and some information about him being a big deal at the Battle of the Trident. We of course met him last week. Uh, Lord Beric is back. Jane Poole is in love with him. Got a highlight. Our namesake. Yeah. I want to ask too, by the way, Jane Poole, have we met her before? She kind of shows up as a friend of Sansa's yeah. who's watching this. I didn't remember anything about her. I thought maybe I should know her. So she's she's shown up a couple of times. She's Sansa's best friend from back in Winterfell. So she was in uh, the beginning of Arya's first chapter when they're all doing needlework together. She was in that mm, room. Okay. She was expected, you know, she was going to join Sansa in the Queen's carriage in Sansa 1, but that ends up getting canceled. Um, and her dad is Veyon Poole, who is the steward for the Starks. Okay. okay so he's cool. here too. So Great. she's like lesser nobility from, from Winterfell that Sansa has grown up with. Uh, we get another reference to Walder Frey's many children, a lot of whom are here. And we also get our first couple of foreigners that we've really heard about in Westeros. So there's Thoros of Mir, who you already mentioned. He's referred to as a warrior priest. Uh, he fights with a flaming sword and a was flaming involved. flaming sword. Super badass. Yeah, super cool. He um, he climbed the wall that you were talking about uh, in the Siege of Pike, which is the Greyjoy Rebellion. Pike is the mm-hmm. house seat for the Greyjoys. So we know that was about seven, eight years ago. And then the other one, Jalabar Joe, is a Black Summer Islander. Uh, we hear that Jane Poole is super racist and is afraid of him. So that's not cool. Get, get it together, Jane. Um, but, you know, that's just some highlights from this list of names we got. The story continues through this chapter again early on, but it's really like we said, Sansa's point of view, and they're watching this all happen. We watch the parade of these people come in, some of the people that you were just mentioning, and then the jousting starts, and it's really, really fun. Sansa and Jane are having this wonderful time together. Uh, However, we quickly move to a sort of uh, traumatic event uh, where during one of the jousts, a young and mostly unknown young knight uh, is it, it, like like falls victim to to an accident and dies. Uh, yeah, Gregor Clegane sticks his lance through the kid's throat. That's right. And I really want to stress, Gregor Clegane is going to come up a, a bunch throughout this chapter, and and we'll be talking about him, I'm sure, in more detail. But he is enormous. This is not someone to mess with. And here he is against sort of this younger kid, and with some miss, you know, not miscommunication, but but due to some armor malfunction or failure something was vulnerable and this accident happens and we get to watch Sansa really deal with this in really an incredible posture. Uh, she was able to sort of keep it together and she understood what her duty was as a lady to this where her friend Jane does not and gets really sick and has to leave. Yeah. So I, I have two thoughts there. The first one is just a plot point. So, you know, the explanation we get here, 
Sir Gregor's lance rode up and struck a young knight from the vale under the gorget. Uh, the youth fell not 10 feet. We get a description. His armor was shiny new, a bright streak of fire. Uh, that's just a reference to light. Uh, his cloak was blue, the color of the sky on a clear summer's day trimmed with a border of crescent moons. When we read this, we're going to come back to it in a little while. Did you have any thoughts on who this was, if this was anything significant or it just went nope. past you? It did go past me, but I will say it's like four pages later that we start to find out who this is. So so right. it's not obviously it's going to come up real fast about this, if not even this chapter in the next one. I was just curious. Yeah, no, totally no, no, reasonable. I think as he was marching in, like as one of the people in the progression, and there was a little more detail about him and it did. It, I, it was something that caught my eye, but not enough to be like, oh, this was a significant moment in the moment. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. The other thing was just with Sansa's reaction here, this kind of ties in and, you know, maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but the idea of her not engaging with this situation as a, a real thing. These are characters in a story. These are, a, a, it's a movie she's watching and not necessarily something she's putting together. And the smattering of violence that is is salted through this part of the chapter through the description of the tournament i think is a really interesting red flag for us kind of similar to in her first chapter the fight between aria and joffrey for where there are cracks in the song that she's experiencing where there mm. are maybe flaws so you know she's really loving this she everything sees everything through gold curtains uh just like a real pure rose-colored glasses and this kid dies 10 feet from her in a very violent fashion. And it's not the only injury that we see. We see Renly get knocked off his horse so hard he breaks a piece of his armor. Robar Royce gets knocked unconscious and has to be carted off. Uh, it's just these little moments. But it's the nature of the tournament as right. fighting as play and fighting as sport is it looks amazing to her because she's just looking at the surface level and kind of ignoring what's underneath it. And I think that that is kind of, we've talked before about how the songs end up having that exact effect that they gloss over the violence that lies underneath them, the reality of them. They're people's ways to sugarcoat, to kind of whitewash the events that put them in power later on. I suppose, but I'll also add too, and I don't disagree with your perspective on Sansa and her gold-colored curtains and, and and you know, sort of, you know, in those being the rose-colored glasses as a cliche. Uh, but I will say also, and it's a little bit of a pushback, is that, you know, on the one hand, on the one hand, sure, you know, she's disassociating a little bit from the violence of the situation. On the other this world and this life includes this. And you need to, if you want to be a participant, especially at a higher level, in her case, to become a lady and eventually to become a queen, uh, she needs to accept these as the fun and games and sport of the time. Absolutely. And and I think that she's finding a way to do that. I will come back to this and the sort of cracks in the story in about four pages okay. uh, as we get somewhere else, because I think it stands out, I would say that less so here and more later, but I do agree that she is seeing this with this sort of you know, filtered perspective and 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 going through. Yeah, that way. and to be clear, I, I both mean it in the sense of talking about Sansa as a character and what she's perceiving and not, but I'm I'm talking about it even more so from a societal perspective. Mm -hmm. So I say that to mean that I 100% agree with you. Yeah, because it, it's 
just simply correct. Septimordain is praising Sansa for mm-hmm. not being like Jane, for being able to stomach it, for being able to be proper and be courteous through the entire series of events. And the truth is that all of the spectacle, the armor that Tobo Mott makes for these people is Mm -hmm. a sheen that is put on top of the violence of it, that they are playing war. And many of the stories and songs are about actual war. They are about killing. They are about violence. And so you put that patina on top of it, that gloss on top of it through the stories as a way to kind of justify and, and propagandize what it is the society is actual, actually built off of. I would say the same thing about our society, though. I think that we do plenty of that ourselves. So <laughs> I, I just... I, no, I 100% agree. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you think about all of the, the DOD-funded blockbusters that are out yeah. there. This is... She is... The kid who signs up to for the U.S. military, uh, I mean, she's not because she's not signing up to fight, but she's the kid who signs up for the U.S. military because they played a bunch of Call of Duty and had a blast with it. That's yeah, where that's she's fair. at right now. So with that said, we have this this murder in the ring, this killing in the ring, although it's part of the sport and we know it's going to happen. There's no, uh, you know, I called it murder. It's not murder. You know, this is part of the sport. There was an accident right. that happened. It's fine. It moves on. And in fact... Sure enough, that person's carted off and a sword comes out and tosses dirt over the blood and it picks back up and everybody's back into the game again. Yeah. We do have this interesting sort of moment that happens that I just want to call out, which is uh, at one point, a stranger comes up to Sansa and kind of says, hmm, I like your sexy Tully face. Yeah. Uh, not in those, quite in those words, but we find out that- uh, Pretty that, close to those words. Yeah. he. It, Baelish, Littlefinger, uh, arrives, and we, we realize Sansa has no idea who this is, but Baelish basically says, man, you look just like your mom. Basically, I have a real love and place in my heart for your mom, and then kind of walks away, and and Septimordain says, oh, yeah, Lord Baelish, he's a man, part of the king's small council, and it's a really tiny moment, but it definitely is, at least for me, it was a bit of a skeevy moment. Oh, why this interaction this... makes my skin crawl. Yeah, why is this adult, why is this man coming to this young woman and and kind of doing this weird mostly sexual kind of not that he's making sexual moves on her as much as sexualizing her as a, yes. like an, an extension of her mother yeah uh, definitely 100%. creepy yeah and I, I mean it gets put into perspective we'll get to this by a conversation Kat and Tyrion have in two chapters mm-hmm. uh, but I'll bring this yeah. back up then yeah exactly but it, it, the it is thing. so everything about it is just gross it is sexualizing and he is talking to a literal child i mean everything about this perspective from her places her in childhood i'm curious with this interaction did this put Littlefinger into any sort of a different light for you i know that we've talked before he's sleazy he's slimy so i don't think this is out of character for mm-hmm. him but in terms of you know what we've seen from him putting aside the gross kind of dickish aspects of his personality Cat came down and chatted with him mm-hmm. and he He's said super helpful. Yep. I love you. I've always loved you. You're part of my family. I'm here to help. And then he's been helping Ned out. Is there anything else going on there? Or is this gen- genuinely, or I mean, maybe it even reinforces it that he's looking at, maybe he can have a new cat once Sansa gets a little bit older. I, I don't know. I was just well, wondering if you I have any I, takeaway. I, that's an interesting, I know you, that's not really like, like a point point that you're making, but I keep in mind she is betrothed to the crown prince. I mean, I right. can't imagine he's going to overstep too many bounds here. However, I do think, and again, this is framed more by what you were just alluding to that we'll talk about in a couple chapters with Tyrion. Uh, but I think that there it's one thing to be a a well-meaning character 
with a brashness or an attitude issue. You know what I mean? Like, like, okay, yeah. don't love your, your methodology, but you're clearly your heart's in the right place for what our heroes need or what, what we, we think is morally right. This interaction with really, I think skin crawling, what you said was really the right way to say it. This doesn't make sense. Why would this character do this if it, for any reason, besides he feels he has a right to do it. There's yeah. something, there's something over the top masculine about this motion here. You're a young woman. I'm here to look at you and touch you and then go away. I'm not here to introduce myself. I'm not here to make a relationship right. with you. I'm objectifying you at the highest of levels. And all of a sudden, is this somebody who is really trying to help Ned Stark? Is this somebody who has these emotions for Cat? Or is this really who Ned really has thought of him as and others have referred to him as as self-serving in yeah. a, a more devious way than I, I previously thought? So it was an interesting moment, a small moment. It gets characterized in a couple chapters that we'll talk about mm -hmm. a little bit more. But, uh, but maybe I think a, so it, a soft red flag for his motivations. For yeah, then. exactly. Right. That makes sense. And with that said, uh, day one of the uh, of the tournament comes to an end. Yeah. So there's there's four people left. They're leaving the semifinals for tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. Just to set the stage, it's Loris Tyrell, the Knight of Flowers, Jamie, Sander, and Gregor. So so that's our final four there. Jamie's so dreamy. <laughs> uh, the so is Loris Tyrell. I don't care about him. <laughs> uh, no, but he obviously is too. He goes around, he hands out flowers. He's great. He handed one to Sansa. We didn't really talk about it, but but oh, he's yeah. a dreamboat of a of a knight. Um, but that's it. The tournament comes to an end, and uh, now a character comes into the scene that we haven't seen in a long time. And in fact, Sansa mentions that Joffrey comes and sits next to her. They haven't talked since the incident with the direwolves and Arya, and on the trip and things like that. She really hasn't. Yeah, seen and this is at the uh, the tournament feast, which they're that's doing right. down by the river too. So you know, everybody leaves the pavilion and goes to the feast, and uh, Sansa sits down with Joffrey there. There's also just a great moment sprinkled through this that I'm just going to summarize now. We don't need to keep coming back to it, but Sansa is sitting with Joffrey on one side and Septim Ordain on the other. And uh, Septim Ordain proceeds to get absolutely hammered, pass out at the table, and then can't show up to the tournament tomorrow morning because she's too hungover, uh, which <laughs> just We've like a there. wonderful moment for our resident nun who is yeah. all about like finishing school. Yeah. And yeah, I actually, I really enjoy that too. I thought it gave a real humanity to her in, in a way that I could understand. She is here yeah. to be a, a teacher, but what a delight that she can participate in these joys. Yeah. Have, have your, have your fun times, Septimore Dan. With that said, Joffrey comes and sit next to, sits next to Sansa and Sansa goes through this very quick mental uh, gymnastics where she's afraid, she's nervous about what's going on. Obviously they haven't talked. And then she also goes and I really want to call this out. She says it's really like the issue with, you know, Lady, her direwolf being killed and the whole issue that happened really, why would Jeffrey be, Joffrey be at fault? This isn't yeah. Joffrey's fault. This was the queen. This was yeah. the queen and Arya. And Arya. These are the people to be mad at. And sure enough, this perspective is actually really healthy because the next thing that happens is Joffrey is the, the essence of gentleman. Uh, he really comes through and is just, just unbelievably kind to Sansa and so sweet to her and really just doting on her and letting her dote on him uh which was yeah really he's sweet. he's he's fulfilling the role for sure he and uh you know he's dressed the part uh he's in great clothes he's got a, a golden sapphire coronet matching his bright hair and he's handsome and gallant as any prince in the songs and the soul of courtesy and this the is just, soul you know, of courtesy this is the first half of of 
her last chapter, Sansa's last chapter all over again, where he is in that part. And we've seen kind of, he's able to play that role in extended portions with her and then kind of flashes into this anger, this bitterness that we've seen from him a couple of times here. But when he's in that role, she just laps it up. She absolutely loves it. And having a wonderful evening together and enjoying dinner together and enjoying him as the soul of courtesy, uh, all of a sudden, this this sort of wonderful moment gets broken up just a little bit because we start to hear shouts from the king's side of the room, basically. Yeah. I like this note also that leading up to this, Sansa thinks that King Robert has been getting louder and louder as the meal goes on just because he's drunk as hell. Exactly. But sure enough, he he jumps up and basically shouts and, and the whole room quiets down because now the king has not only is he drunk, but he's making a scene and he comes up and says, you do not tell me what to do, woman. He screamed at Queen Cersei. I am king here. Do you understand? I rule here. And if I say that I will fight tomorrow, I will fight. So we find out from this and very quickly, and there's a little bit more context that comes as well. But basically, King Robert Baratheon wants to be part of the melee part of the tournament tomorrow. Yes. Uh, and yeah. his queen says, that's that's ridiculous. You shouldn't do that at all. And it's now become a scene. It's now more than just a conversation between a king and his wife. Uh, but the whole court now gets to be a part of this. Yeah. And, and this kind of goes Percy back to storms off. Yeah, she's, she's pissed and leaves. And this goes back to something we talked about going back to the direwolf scene where, you know, Cersei we've seen her be very good in that trial of Arya scene at manipulating Robert, manipulating the situation to make herself look good. But she is really walking on a knife's edge at any given moment where she can get undercut by Robert. And like, I'm sure this didn't look good for him. Uh, and he makes it look worse in a moment after she leaves too. Uh, but this really takes away authority from her, I think, in my opinion, that when you have something like that, you stand up to the king, stand up to the power, uh, and try and assert yourself against it, and then get your feet taken out from under you, that just from a power politics standpoint, you have to imagine she's getting laughed at by a lot of people there, and so is Robert, uh, and this just isn't a good look for anybody in the, in the royal family. I suppose, but I do think, as I was, and especially as I was reading it, that she actually comes out looking better than he does. He is Certainly. drunk, he is belligerent, and he wants to fight. And his queen, the essence of sense, is saying that's absurd. And now he's making a scene. So I think that you're right. But if anybody came out worse than the other, I think it's the king. And I think Cersei yeah. really, you know, is the, is a voice of reason being ignored. And then he exacerbates that because Jamie comes over and tries to like put a mm -hmm. hand on Robert's shoulder. Seems like he's trying to calm him down. And Robert shoves him. Jamie falls over. He shouts, I can still knock you in the dirt. Remember that King Slayer. Uh, and then really even undermines that image by slopping his wine all over himself in the process. So it's just like, this is not anybody who's who's really radiating authority here. With that, the evening kind of comes to a close. Everybody, now that the king has kind of like, like done this and then, and then he leaves pretty soon thereafter, the party's over. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Joffrey offers uh, offers Sansa an escort if she wants back to where she's staying in the Red Keep, and she's excited for it, only to realize that he didn't mean it himself, but instead was going to send his dog, the Hound, to take her. Yeah, and just to clarify, because this actually confused me a little bit. I don't know if you were confused, but so the whole tournament is going on down by the river, uh, mm -hmm. which passes 
by King's Landing. And so they have everything set up out there. And the knights, uh, everybody who's fighting and participating in the king and everyone has tents set up down yeah. there. So presumably that's where Joffrey's staying, but Sansa's staying back in the castle. So now it's nighttime. It's dark out. They're a little ways away from the city walls. Presumably she doesn't want to walk through the city itself by herself either as a young woman, mm-hmm. uh, a young girl even. Uh, so that's that's what's going on here. And so sure enough, here comes the Hound. Uh, Sander Clegane is here to take Sansa back to the Red Keep. And Sansa is immediately terrified because he is a terrifying, terrifying man. He is enormous. He is disfigured in his face. uh, And he's constantly kind of giving her shit. Uh, And she has this line going back to our conversation earlier. The feast was over and the beautiful dream had ended with it. mm -hmm. Like this is really just a splash cold water here having to deal with drunk Sander walking her back. And uh, and and I think there's actually this moment becomes in the chapter and, and kind of finishes out the chapter, uh, but kind of really sweet. Sander Clegane is drunk. He's been in the tournament all day and he's drunk and he obviously has this sort of gruff. He is a gruff and enormous man and uh, and is incredibly intimidating. But somehow through a combination of what I can only assume is exhaustion and drinking and being full and all these different things, he he starts to kind of, he starts to share. He starts to share about himself and his perspectives and what he thinks. He stresses that he is not a sir. He is not a knight. He is a sworn sword to the Lannisters, but not a knight. And he spits on those who would be knights. Uh, and he and, goes, uh, go ahead. I, yeah. think you're, I think you're cutting out one factor here, mm-hmm. which is Sansa. I think we mm. need to give her credit here in opening him up because they have a whole back and forth at the start of this about what it means to be a lady and what he thinks of what it means to be a lady. And he is is down on this and negative about this. She is lying to him. Her courtesy is lies. It is her masking her true feelings about him. She's saying the things that Septa Mordain has taught her to say because this is how a lady is courteous and chivalric towards the knights around her. Uh, and I think the genuineness of it coming from Sansa really does add to it and open him up. She is trying to treat him in the way that she thinks she is supposed to because of a kindness, of a tenderness from her, I think mm-hmm. that is is showing up here. Uh, and so it all starts, a true lady would not notice his face, she told herself. And then she says, you rode gallantly today, which she means honestly. I mean, he's in the mm-hmm. final four. And she's like, okay, what can I say to this guy who terrifies me, who is drunk and angry and bitter and all of these things? What can I bring up? What can I say? And she comes up with something nice to say, which is clearly not an experience that he's particularly used to. Uh, and so I, I think that that contributes just as much as the drunk and tired aspects as to why he ends up deciding to share these things with her. I like that, although I will take it one step further, which is that I think that he may not be used to it, but he also abhors it. And yes. I think that he, that he's in this perfect moment and situation to, you know, it, it's not that her sensitivity softens him. It almost takes him to the point of, you know, the the sort of rage-like level saying you are part of a system that I don't like. And and through that, some vulnerability comes out. And through that, he ends up sharing probably more than he means to. He I talks think it's, it's even more than that, though. It's Her honesty is so at odds with what he has come to expect from this system. He sees her role and her approach to this and as well the role of knights and you know his brother as a knight and all of these things as lies as exactly what we were talking about as the surface surface level coding that helps make everything look better but isn't actually dealing with any of it and my personal 
instinct here is that as she communicates more successfully over the course of this conversation, that she is saying what she is saying, not as that Hmm. purely silver lining, but because this is who she is and who she is trying to be, that that hits home for him. And it's that contrast between what he's used to and what she's presenting to him that both conjures up that rage from him against the system and against the society, as well as prompts this, this honesty. I, I hear that. I, I do think that there's there's more of his actions have to do with his disdain towards the level of wealth yeah. that she comes from than than an openness to her. But okay. I will say that I do agree with like 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 your characterization of Sansa and sort of her growth through this. There are two two strong conversations that happen within. I'm sorry. There's two strong points, basically the strong story points that get hit upon in the conversation mm-hmm. between Clegane and Sansa. The first is that he points at uh, the young knight who died at the tournament uh, and says, you know, you think, first of all, do you think that was an accident? Yeah. Uh, do you think that my brother, and he's talking about this as a way to share about himself and his family and sort of the hardships that he went through. But do you think that my brother didn't notice that that wasn't set right? Do you, did you not know that this was a poor knight who should have never been there, who had nobody to help him put on his, his armor and be prepared for this? Gregor's uh, lance goes where Gregor points it. And as this goes, uh, he 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 also at the same time that Clegane is talking about this says, "Look at me! You need to look at this face. Your your instincts as a lady says ignore this disfigurement that I have, but I'm going to force you to face the reality of this, the reality of my face and the pain and suffering that it's been through and that I've been through, the reality of this tournament and the fact that this is not." the games that you want it to be and the songs that it will become for you. These are people who are being killed here because that's what our life is. Kill and be killed. Yeah, absolutely. I'll say that the second thing that ends up happening is he then takes it even further and actually goes on and shares the story about what happened to his face. And, and I think that this, in my mind and for his character, came a lot out of the combination of things that you were just talking about and the, the, the situation and being drunk. But here is this woman, this young woman that he is sort of forced to spend this little bit of time with, uh, who is offering a sensitivity that he's not used to, nor does he necessarily look for. And that while his sort of threatening motion of saying, look at my face, then sort of melts into a little bit of, I'm going to share with you this hardship reality that I've been through. And in yeah. fact, this and disfigurement- I think you also, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to finish it out that this disfigurement didn't come from what you would assume. This wasn't from a war. This wasn't from a battle. This was me as a child. And in fact, my brother, a knight that you hold in such high esteem, he did this to me. I took a toy of his and he grabbed my face without any emotion and shoved me into the hot coals until three people had to pull him off of me. Yeah. And I I think one other thing that plays into what you've been talking about is Sander seems to want to share this with her to have her understand that Mm. the society that she is in love with, this uh, role that she is playing, that this is what it really means. You love these knights. You love the armor. You love the glamour of it. Here's who they actually are at their core. Here's why I reject it. And he sees this innocent person who does not understand the, what he feels is the hypocrisy of it, the, the horror, the violence of it. And he says, no, I'm going to hold this up to you. I'm going to hold it up so you have to look at it and you have to see it. And this is where my interpretation of Sansa throughout this scene comes from because her reaction is not 
what he expects it to be. Mm. What he has gotten from everybody else is, oh, he's disfigured. This is part of what happens to men in our world. This is just mm-hmm. part of it. And I'm sure there are plenty of people out there. Uh, I mean, we learn in the next chapter about his family, plenty of people who would look at this situation and say, well, yeah, Gregor's big and strong and we need him because he's good at war and all of these things. So like, whatever, it is what it is. And Sansa's reaction instead is, he was no true knight. She's not afraid anymore. She's just sad. And she tells Sander, he was no true knight. This isn't what being a knight means. This isn't what I'm celebrating about knighthood. Right. And this gets through to him. He laughs and he agrees with her. He says, you're right. No, he's he's not. He's not a true knight. And then because uh, that heartfelt moment can't last too long for Sander, for who he is and for what it is he feels, he follows that up with, if you tell anyone the story I just told you, I will kill you. I will kill you. Um, I did want to, and, and that does round out the chapter for Sansa there. He takes her back to the Red Keep and says, I'll kill you if you tell anybody. But but it really is, it's a sensitive moment. I do think, and I wanted to stress this too, that this part of the chapter brings up, and I'm just reiterating a few things that we just said, but it really does bring up these foils between the uh, sort of gold, you know, golden curtain uh, point of view versus yeah. the reality. And I think there's a real class separation there as well. You have Sansa Stark the royalty of Winterfell, now here betrothed to the prince, the crown prince in King's Landing, able to sit here and listen to stories and have these dreams of knights and what they're worth. And then you have what it means to be of this poorer class and to even as a knight, which he's not, but but to have to go through and that these are physical battles that they're all mm-hmm. fighting. I will add yeah. also that something that struck me is that not only was his brother, the mountain, uh, knighted, but was knighted by Rhaegar Targaryen. And it keeps yeah. striking me just how much overlap for all of this story as a whole about sides and teams and alliances and righteousness and this the fact is is there's a there there's constantly is a fluidity between the last rulers and the current ones who was under the last one who is now here and that life is a little more blurry than these sort of stark lines uh, mm-hmm. that these stories often kind of shape for us Yeah, I will just say, I mean, I think you're right that Sansa's class perspective and her upbringing is just fundamentally different from Sanders. But we do have, you know, the the tournament is taking place with royalty and nobility and people at all levels of this, not all levels, sorry, strictly at the highest levels. And there, there are differences between that but that we're also seeing an element of the gender roles in this society Mm. you have the men are expected to go out there and hit each other and die uh, and fight in the wars and fight in the tournaments and the women are expected to sit by and look pretty and get sleazed all over by peter baelish and you know to tell everybody that they were wonderful afterwards and to kind of accept and embody the song aspect of these things and so you see the the twin sides of that you can imagine how a girl in Sansa's position could go her entire life pretending that these songs, you know, sword fighting and war is all gallantry and, and beauty. And Sander is here to explain to her, no, like, pay attention to the violence. Look at me more concretely. Understand what this world is actually like. I will say, too, just from the class perspective, it is royalty in this, but it is the young, poor knight who is the one that dies. And yes. it is, you know, Sander Clegane is not a knight, but happens to be an enormous beast of a man, a right. brute animal who is there to do it. So, you know, he's not the knight of flowers. He's not even his own brother who he's is not knight. Jamie. And he's not Jamie either with golden yeah. locks. It's, it, it's, 
you know, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but it, it, I think it is something to point out that it's like, man, like those that are dying are not necessarily the ones that are part of the high class, even though that's the majority. Absolutely. But we'll find out a little bit more of that in a second. So that takes us to uh, the next chapter, basically. That's Eddard seven. number seven. Eddard seven. <laughs> I should write this down. No, uh, this starts early the next morning. Yeah. Uh, and Ned is kind of uh, gathering information and hearing about things that have happened and and sort of being brought into the day of what's going on. And it starts with the death of this young knight, uh, and yeah. just the news of it and finding it out. And we find out very quickly who this knight is. Sir Hugh. Poor Sir guy. Hugh. This yeah, was, so this was yeah, go ahead. Say, say who this, this was. was. Uh, this was John Aaron's squire. So this was one of the four people that Ned was trying to track down and talk to. He had sent Jory to go talk to him. And the guy said, like, fuck you. I'll, I'll talk to the hand directly if I choose to, but I'm not going to talk to some lowly uh, head of captain of the guards. Uh, so Ned never got to speak with him. And now he is conveniently dead. Conveniently dead is the name of my heavy metal album. That's a good name. Thank you. Um, but yeah, he is conveniently dead. And I don't think there's any concern or there is even a slight mention from Ned of like, was this intentional? Yeah, Ned uh, is wondering. Yeah, Ned's Ned's starting to have that paranoia of a of a detective, uh, which follows kind of exactly what he's been doing, and I think it makes sense. But he's, you know, who knows what to trust and what not to trust right now. Yeah, there's also a great little moment. So he's talking with Barristan Selmy, who stood vigil for the kid because there's nobody else there, and the two of them are chatting, and uh, just perfectly in line with the conversation we were just ha having ned gets even more frustrated that the tournament is being held in his name mm -hmm. and he says this was needless war should not be a game you know he is being honest about the violence of it and here we have you know first of all it's notable that he did not choose to participate in any way whereas some of the other winterfell mm -hmm. household members we hear last time did he is uninterested in playing at violence violence is violence uh and certainly we know he's participated in wars i don't think he's a pacifist by any stretch of the imagination mm -hmm. but he's not here to play at it he's not here to get a gleaming piece of armor from tobo mott and show up and look pretty while he potentially kills somebody by accident we find out next, uh, so so the news of the death of this squire of Sir Hugh, not a squire anymore, but a knight, but the death of Sir Hugh is followed quickly on the news that the king means to fight in the melee today. Yeah, he does. Ned seems to not have been at dinner last night. So this, uh, I don't know if this is the first he's heard of it. Uh, he seems to already have heard, but he's like, yeah, somebody needs to deal with this. And in fact, he realizes that it's him. He needs to deal with this. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do like this line from Barristan Selmy, uh, who says, you know, maybe he's changed his mind. They say night's beauties fade at dawn and the children of wine are oft disowned in the morning light. Just a perfect, anybody who's made plans while drunk. Yes. This is excellent. Strong agree. Big underlined <laughs> notes in my book as well about that, uh, about that line. Um, we do have, so, so, so as this is happening, Ned is kind of starting to move in the motion towards the camp so that he can start talking to Robert Baratheon and be like, this is a dumb idea. But uh, as this is happening, he, oh, and I'm sorry, he actually, he gets there mm -hmm. and there he finds King Robert Baratheon with two squires who are trying to squeeze this man <laughs> into his armor yeah. and they have tears in their eyes. It doesn't fit. It doesn't. And Robert Baratheon is there being like, you're useless. All of you are useless. He's also already drinking. Already drinking. The man loves to drink. And and sure enough, he gets kind of called out 
Yeah, by, and tells him to his face. Yeah, and says, like, you're not going to fit in there. You're enormous. You're fat. And so he sends these boys off to go find, you know, an armor to help spread out the breastplate or whatever. Oh, and did you did you not pick up on this? He tells part? them to go get the breastplate stretcher. Oh, yeah. Is that like a left-hand is... smoke shifter type thing? Like Exactly. Uh... Yeah, no, this is a prank. He's sending these, these dipshit squires to go get something that doesn't exist. And he even says he sends them to Aaron Santigar, who we know is the master at arms for the red keep and says i right. hope he i hope he gets the joke and tells them just to go talk keep, to somebody keep else going right well just it's just the the dumb privates and basic training who are getting sent all over base to find this thing that doesn't exist and i'll say that it's not just dumb privates in fact these are lannisters they're some type of cousin or something and mm -hmm. ned even points it out this is a very ambitious family ned first Constantly notices he yeah he recognizes them he looks at them he's like they look like lannisters and then he yep. turns to robert and says Right. And uh, Robert confirms. Yeah, these are nephews of Tywin's. Uh, Robert thinks one of the dead brothers or the live one. He doesn't know. But at this point, the king is still eager to join into the melee. And it's only when Sir Barristan kind of speaks up and says, it would be unfair if you did that, because who's going to touch you? Yeah. Who's going? This won't be a competition. It's not about you win. And you and and the king's kind of taken aback by this, which I think speaks to how dumb he is. Uh <laughs> Or, and that's that's a horrible way to say it. Really, I think it speaks to his innocence. He's not a politician. The man wants to drink. He wants to have sex and he wants to fight. He's yeah. a brawler at the end of the day in a position that he's not fit for, nor does he want to be in, but he's kind of stuck in it and he knows it. And uh, you can also hear, like, we talk a lot about Ned's honor, but this is sort of Robert's honor in a sense. You can hear from him if he wasn't the king, if somebody else was the king, he would be the guy in the melee ready to go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. I'm going to kick the crap out of the king because that will make me look cool and win. Right. Which is idiotic. I mean, if something goes wrong, you're going to get in trouble. And he doesn't even register that. But it doesn't make sense to him that other people wouldn't have the same attitude he does. I will say, though, that while this comment about that nobody would touch him kind of deflates his desire to be in it, and he understands now, and it's getting to him, uh, we got to get to this next part where, well, and I just thought this was an interesting kind of like contrast, right? He doesn't want to be king, but he asks everybody to leave but Ned now that he's kind of deflated. Mm -hmm. And he hands Ned the flask of beer and says, drink. And Ned says, you know, I really don't want to drink right now. And he says, your king commands it. And yeah. so- at the same time that he doesn't want to be have the responsibilities, he doesn't seem to mind the ability to Definitely not. make some commands. I want to return just quickly to something from this conversation about the melee uh, that I think is a notable moment here. Because Ned wa walks in and brings up that you want to fight in the melee. And Robert complains that Cersei forbade him, mm -hmm. which said you can't fight. Uh, and, you know, I wish your sister Leanna had never died because she never would have done that. And Ned's like, I don't think you knew her very well. Like, she yeah. absolutely would have told you to stop being an idiot and sit down, uh, which really fits with, you know, we've heard her compared to Arya. We know the Stark personality. It doesn't seem like she probably wasn't somebody who was going to back down and be a, a wilting wallflower with Robert. Uh, but it is interesting that Ned points out you didn't really get to know her all that well. I think... It's interesting from that perspective, but also from the other. And in fact, we'll hear more about this in just a moment, like in a couple pages as well, which is this this character of Robert Baratheon is kind of predictable. Mm -hmm. He's he's a little hard, more than a little. He's hard headed. He wants to think that that, you know, Ned's sister would have, you know, Lyanna would have been like, oh, yes, I love you. And Cer Cersei doesn't. And 
or what, you know what I mean? Like, like there's this yeah. contrast between it, but there's a part of reality here that, that he's not tuned into uh, and nor does he want to be. And, and I think that that makes him predictable. And I think it makes him controllable in certain ways that we've seen. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw it with the issue with the dire wolf. We saw, it, you know, in Cersei and the dire wolf and things like that with Sansa's dire wolf and, and what happened with Joffrey. And, and, and he's, you know, right. There's a knowledge that he's not going to react one way or another. He will sort of cave at certain things and he will react to certain things, which again, I just speaks to his inability to be a good king. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also just a place here where this brief interaction highlights some of what's going on underneath the surface for Robert. He talks so much about his love for Lyanna and really sorts everything in his life into that framework where something that Cersei does that bothers him, you can see how he instantly pivots to, oh, the woman I actually loved would never have done this. Like, Mm -hmm. I hate Cersei for this. And Ned is kind of pointing out the disconnect there. You know, it's so easy for Robert to blame his actions on the circumstances that are around him. He drinks and he uh, whores around and is getting fat and all of these things because he lost Lyanna. And you have to wonder if that's actually true. You know, this is Mm -hmm. he has these appetites. He talks a lot about this and you can very easily imagine a headstrong Arya type bride in Lyanna who ends up fighting with him just as much. And he ends up falling into these same bad instincts. And so he's latched onto this trauma that he has this loss from the rebellion and from Lyanna, but he's, he's using that as an excuse for his behavior in a way that is not necessarily justified. So all of this moves us to the next sort of like a beat in, in this part of the story. So Robert Baratheon, the king, has sort of understood and come to terms with the fact that he can't be in the melee, kicks everybody out of his tent except for Ned, who he says to stay, because he has something to talk about. And in fact, he wants to talk about Joffrey. He wants to talk about his son. Uh, And more than that, he wants to kind of point out he really doesn't like this kid. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't really love the idea of Joffrey sitting on the throne and Cersei behind him. And he even says in a moment before that, that Cersei and him getting married is actually John Aaron had, had made that connection. Uh, and he has John Aaron to thank for Cersei. Yeah. Specifically, there was fear about the Lannisters as a potential focal point for resistance to Robert since they were embedded with the Targaryen regime. They only came over very late in the war and, uh, and also the need to produce an heir quickly, Mm -hmm. you know, steady the succession, get that dealt with. Uh, I actually said in last week's episode that uh, Stannis was Robert's heir, which is not correct uh, importantly, but you know, all you have is the brothers. You need to have your own child. And, you know, Robert, I think, on some level seems to understand the necessity of that point and of that argument and of the argument of, of the stability that the Lannisters coming into the dynasty provides, but he just cannot stand Cersei. I mean, they don't even sleep together much anymore. Like this entire relationship seems to have these troubles. But I will stress about that too, that it's, it seems that it's a Cersei thing that they're not sleeping together more than he's avoiding the Lannister woman that he's with. Right. She, you know, guards herself, I forget what he says, but he guards her. She guards herself. He uses a bad word. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's really, that's really kind of where this conversation. uh, There's a conversation about Joffrey is really interesting to me because he hints that there is something deeper going on there. And we've seen Joffrey be a, a dick. Uh, you know, both in the altercation with Rob and then later surrounding the direwolf stuff. But 
he specifically, you know, he apologizes for the situation with the dire wolves, says, you know, I'm certain Joffrey was lying. He's a bad kid. Uh, but then he really gets into this, this kind of self-flagellation. How could I have made a son like that, Ned? You know, and Ned says, mm-hmm. oh, the, he's a wild kid. You were a wild kid. Robert's like, no, this is different. And so, you know, that's, it's not something that we've seen firsthand more than him just being like an entitled shit of a kid. Uh, but Robert really does seem to be referencing something, something darker there before he backs off. Yeah, but it's all, I mean, like, it just feels in the same vein as Ned's, like, like hypotheses about what could happen. And in fact, a page later, Ned even like kind of waxes poetic and, and smiles at the, he's like, ah, oh, here's the Robert that I remember, the child who is sort of brash and brazen and wanted to make sure that everything was done the way that it needed to be done. And, and it's nice. It's nice to see them kind of like, especially specifically from Ned's point of view, but right. Okay, great. Like this is the type of person you like to be around, but it's not lost that this is not the world they get to live in. They're not right. kids anymore. They're not going onto the battlefield. The battlefield now is the court. The battlefield is exactly these situations. And Ned, while he's kind of waxing poetic, is like, great. And then we're going to find the proof and we're going to take down Cersei and we're going to avenge John Aaron's death. And we're going to, and it's like, okay, that's all great. But it 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 seems more and more far-fetched every time he seems to get closer. Little clues here, little clues there. He right. thinks he's making some type of motion, but there are bigger machinations in, in effect here. Yeah. Before we move on to the, the next scene, there's also just one little aspect here that I wanted to mention, which is a repeat of a beat we had last episode where Robert's discussing Joffrey and the kids and things of that nature and says, you know, I wish I had a kid like Loris Tyrell. He's he's a badass. Uh, he beat Jamie last time around. He's doing great this time. And, you know, Renly's actually mentioned to me, Loris has a sister. And this is the second time now that we've seen Renly bring up Loris Tyrell's sister, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Tyrell girl. The last time was, was last episode, he went up to Ned. Ned has kind of a flashback mm. memory about this and says, hey, does this picture remind you of anybody? And Ned's like, right. no. He wants it to and be about Ren Liana. Is, exactly. Uh, that was the same girl. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, you skimmed past it, so I imagine you don't have any thoughts there. But it's notable to me that this is coming up twice in close succession. Interesting. Yeah. No, I don't have any opinion on it. However, with all of this conversation, we move on to the next beat of the story, which quickly moves us uh, back to the tournament. And uh, and Ned joins his daughter, Sansa, uh, where they're sitting to sort of watch this, this semifinal and final occur. We have the first bout between Sander Clegane and Jamie Lannister. Mm-hmm. And Sander quickly unseats Jamie. Yeah. Uh, and knocks him off onto his butt. And in fact, kind of creates a little bit of a mockery about him. Uh, the, the hit dents Jamie's helmet so much that he can't see, nor can he get it off. And he has to be sort of right. led away, uh, led, led away to a blacksmith. And the the loudest laugh of all is actually from the king himself. Yeah, uh, he loves this. Uh, there's also a great moment right before this little finger and Renly bet against each other, like a huge mm, amount of money right. on this. Uh, and Renly wins and then says, I, I, I wish Tyrion was here too. I would have won twice as much. Hmm. And then I, I don't really have much to say here. The tournament goes on. Uh, and there's there's this awesome kind of final moment in the tournament where the Knight of Flowers uh, goes up against Sir Gregor, who's the mountain, right? Clegane, mm-hmm. uh, who's enormous. There's the and, and basically wins, right? Like this tiny guy against this enormous mountain unseats the mountain, wins yeah, so this we- joust. We learn in a moment that there was there was some trickery to it. So he mm-hmm. 
Uh, Gregor rides these ill-tempered stallions, male horses, and Lorister L picked a, a mare, a female horse in heat, specifically so that it would mess with Gregor's horse. And the whole description of their joust is Gregor can't really get his horse under control or ride it in a straight line. And then Lorister, like he doesn't unseat him, he like taps him and like pushes him off and gets right. the horse to rear. So it's it's really like a kind of shitty backdoor win there. Well, I think it's an awesome way to do it. The man's oh, enormous. Yeah. And if you're going to win, you got to like figure <laughs> out how to do it. But uh, it's just good strategy. Sir Gregor does not take this well. He immediately calls for his sword and then chops off the head of his own horse who failed yep. him. And then basically up. comes at, uh, comes straight for the Knight of Flowers uh, and is stopped by his own brother, by Sander Clegane, who kind of mm-hmm. gets in the way and is like, this isn't, this is not about to happen this way. And eventually the whole thing kind of comes to a halt as the king calls for everything to stop and the king's guard is there to basically pull everybody aside. Mm-hmm. And uh and Sir Gregor Clegane sort of like like storms out and Yeah, leaves. we also get a note here where Sander, who obviously had was done with his match. Uh, did not have a helmet on and Gregor keeps taking shots at his head. So like mm-hmm. he is, is full on seeing red rage mode and trying to kill his brother here. But that ties in. We, we actually Ned thinks through some backstory on Gregor Clegane right before this joust happens that I'll just run through quickly. Gregor is specifically the person who killed Rhaegar's baby child. And then it's rumored raped his wife before mm-hmm. killing her as well at the end of the rebellion. And obviously this is like the original sin of the Lannisters that Ned cannot stay. Uh, but Gregor in general has this really checkered, dark history behind him. There's the whole situation with Sander, which nobody really knows the details of. But Gregor's first two wives died mysteriously, as did a younger sister. Uh, his father died in a hunt, which led to Gregor inheriting. And Sander immediately left the castle and r- reportedly has not returned home at any point. Lots of mystery there. Except I don't think it's that much of a mystery because this man's an insane psychopath. So... Yeah, it's it's just kind of building that for us. Like it's clear at this point, he is an incredibly violent, dangerous person. With that, the tournament kind of comes to a close. There should be one more joust between uh, the Knight of Flowers and uh, Sandor Clegane as like a final match. But the mm-hmm. Knight of Flowers says, "You saved my life, and you should just take the winnings." To which, yeah, I concede. Yeah, you, sir, should take the winnings. And Sandor Clegane says, "I am not a sir." Following up on his conversation with Sansa, but still but he happily will take the winnings. takes that money. <laughs> Again, we have another small conversation that happens between uh, Sir Barris and Selmy and uh, Lord Renly, Littlefinger and Renly. Yeah, that's right. And uh, oh, I'm right, right. Littlefinger and Renly. They go through and they you know pay each other out for what they bet on. Uh, and the next little beat is as Ned leaves, he comes across Arya. And uh, and we have this awesome little moment. I, I have I have a lot of fun with this, and I'm curious to see where it goes. But yeah, Arya's sharing continues to. This is sorry. I'm, I just need to pause us for just one moment. There are two other events in the tournament uh, that mm-hmm. we get a brief reference to. There's the archery competition, which is won by a commoner named Angie or mm-hmm. Angai. I don't know how to say his name. And then the melee, which Robert is not participating in, happens, and it's won by Thoros of Mir with his flaming sword again. So that's why I wanted to say that because the flaming sword's badass. Uh, but either way, it just sounds like cool events. Sounds like a fun time. Uh, and, and then we move on. To Arya. Yes. She's raving about her teacher, her dance teacher, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's talking about all these these sort of things that she's doing with him, to which Ned kind of turns around and is like, this, this is kind of weird. Like, are you sure yeah. you want to, like, I could actually just get you somebody who will just teach you how to, like, parry and block. 
and uh, I'm sorry, Perry and, and Thrust and all of that. But but like like this guy seems kind of more flamboyant than I would have expected. And uh, to which she says, no, 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 there's no way yeah. uh, he's teaching her backflips. He's teaching her how to catch cats. He's teaching her how to move silently and all these things. Move with a blindfold. Right. So it seems like there might be I'm I'm interested to see where this goes. I'm excited and happy to, to get back to an Aria chapter and, and find out more about this. But there's not much depth here. It yeah. really is just Ned being like, well, there's my quirky daughter being quirky. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting that Aria really loves so much this teacher who's is very outside the norm and outside the usual because that fits with what we've talked about with her before but we have this moment from ned at the close to this which i think kind of puts a, a coda kind of wraps up some of the discussions we've been having about aria with gender roles and about ned's relation to that because this conversation closes with ned really thinking this is a phase that aria is going through and he hopes it ends soon and that really gives us some helpful understanding he is supportive of her but not in a real sense he is he is there to make his daughter happy his young daughter uh but at the end of the day much like catelyn what he wants to see is is her to become sansa in eight years you know she's going to grow up and and put aside the sword and the dancing master and start to wear pretty dresses and and play the role that she's supposed to play. He does not see a path and has no interest in creating a path towards her living outside of those types of dynamics there, Uh, which really helps inform, I think, some of her frustration with things. She loves her dad on some level. I'm sure she loves her mom, although we've mainly heard frustration there. But this is the world that she lives in very much so does not make room for the type of person that she seems to want to be. With that said, it's a very small moment and scene that happens between him and Arya, and it moves on. And he kind of goes back into detective mode. He falls back into his thoughts about what he's been researching and looking into and trying to think about connections. And it's at this point that I want to point out what what I had brought up at the beginning of the episode, which is some hypotheses and some thoughts, and especially going off of uh, last episode when you and I were talking about clues and, and what we could learn. So... Some of the things that that he goes through is he's trying to make some connections. This is Ned, and he's just sort of in his own thoughts. Uh, but he's he's trying to understand what the connection is. Why was John Aaron and Stannis? What is the uh, what were they doing together? What is the value of this boy Gendry and Gendry? I'm sorry, and you know, and and what does this have to do? <laughs> and in fact, he he even goes on to stress something that you had brought up in the last conversation, which is. What's, what's it matter that this bastard exists? In fact, there's a lot of bastards. There's so, mm-hmm. King has a ton of different bastards across the realm. And while Cersei may not like it, there's really not much claim any of these bastards could have towards the throne. So what's what's it matter? Uh, and and he's, this, he this actually is, specifically names, well, not names, but brings up two specific mm-hmm. ones here. Uh, there is one that Robert has even acknowledged because uh, the, the bastard's mother is a highborn lady and that mm. kid is at Storm's End. Uh, which is Renly's seat at the moment, but the Baratheon seat, and, and that kid's being raised there. And I thought that was an interesting note because the only other acknowledged bastard that we've really met so far, of course, is John. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've talked about Ashara Dane as the potential mother there, but maybe that gives some sort of implication to when bastards are acknowledged and brought home to court and when they're not. Uh, and then the other one is actually he has a daughter in the veil from when he and Ned were fostered there. This was his first kid. But so you have to imagine he was pretty young uh, when he had this daughter and ned remembers them like hanging out and kind of quasi raising or at least playing with this little girl but so here's where i want to bring up my little fist towards george rr martin okay new hypothesis the only issue is that the children cersei has had 
have come not from Robert Baratheon, but instead from Jamie, because we know they're oh. boning. Okay. In that case, the children now have no right to the throne because they have no connection to the king, which all of a sudden that is puts, what that would mean. Yeah. Puts this new order in together where maybe and and maybe I'm going a little off here, but maybe maybe a bastard does start to have a little more worth because it actually is connected to the king's seat or not. But regardless of whether or not like one of the king's bastards could take over, I wonder if the exploration of Gendry and who he is, why Stannis and, and John went to go see him, was to compare a child of the king to Joffrey, to these other children that are supposedly his. Compare and in what what way? What do you mean? Quality, uh, you know, any? Is, I, I I mean, like honestly, like genetics, right? Like, does okay. it look like this? Do they look similar? Do they have similar ways of talking or whatever it might be? Is there some way that there could be proof to show that Joffrey is not related to the well, king? Is there? I don't know yet. I mean, I, do, you, I, do you have any proof from what we found? I mean, we don't even know for sure that you're right on, on the first step of this hypothesis, which is, you know, Robert doesn't say we've never slept together. Robert says she makes it tough for me. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. so Joffrey and, and Tommen and Marcella could easily be Robert's kids. Uh, I mean, we don't know that. Yeah, but I think the other, the glaring reason why they may not be is because of what Jamie and Cersei were talking about in the Tower, which is they like each other and that's where they want to be. And there's these other oafs in the way, including Robert Baratheon. You know, I think that the 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 fist at George R. R. Martin is there's a lot of different clues going on that I don't think matter. I don't I don't know if the the lineage book has matters at all or if Gendry matters at all. The fact is, is that the crux here might really be what was discussed between Jamie and Cersei in the tower and their situation there. They are boning each other. They've been doing that for a long time. The, the Joffrey clearly looks like a Lannister. Uh, you know, so so I, that that's kind of where my mind is going these days. So, okay. so just just to mention it out there. So let's well, no, let's 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 linger on this for a moment, if you don't mind. The conversation that Jamie and Cersei had back at the beginning. We don't get a ton of concrete details. This conversation very easily could be about the murder of John Aaron. I mean, we know Lysa's accusations. We have an accusation from Lysa. That could be the worry here. What makes you think that this conversation tells us anything about who, who the children are? Or is it just the fact that they're sleeping together? I think, it, well, I just think it's a combination. It's we have Lannisters looking out for Lannisters always. We have Lannisters trying to build up their uh, their 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 secure positions throughout the political system and constantly looking to grow their own wealth. The wealth being not just financial, but their their stature and what's going on and how much power they can control. Mm -hmm. You have a very standoffish Cersei. You have the accusation that Cersei had murdered John Aaron. Uh, and you have that coming on the heels of John Aaron pursuing interest into lineage and, you know, the bastards of the king and things like that. So I think everything's pointing. I, the only thing I can think is that this is a the concern for Cersei is the opportunity her children have for the throne, because if there's no concern, then, you know, if there's nothing for her to be concerned about, then what's she worried about Ned for? What, is, what does she care about any of this stuff? They're in the best position. Ned doesn't possibly. like the Lannisters. 
And Robert doesn't particularly like her. That's fine, but I can't help but continue to point out how enmeshed the Lannisters are throughout all of the kingdom right now. I don't think there's such a thing as like a quick chop to to cut off Lannisters at this point. Well, no, but a quick chop to cut off Cersei could happen. I mean, like, this is this is what Ned's whole plan is. His whole plan is he's going to find evidence with respect to John Aaron and with respect to Bran. And then he's going to bring it to Robert and hope that Robert puts her aside and has her executed and is able to do so in such a way that either makes clear to Tywin and Jamie, you're not starting a rebellion over this. You will not have the support or they do so. And then he fights them. But like either way. But evidence of what is the question? And why would there be like, why would there be any need for wrongdoing? And I can't think of any reason for Cersei except the kid doesn't belong on the throne. You mean like, why would she do these things that she's being accused of? Yeah. Like what, why not feel secure in the fact that she has the prince born of the, of the king. And of course she'll have political enemies. Everyone does, as we see throughout the, you know, the chapters that we read, especially in King's Landing. But that's not rare, nor is it rare for the Lannisters to have it. Like, why not be secure in what's going on here? And the next conversation that's about to happen in this chapter, I think, speaks to this even more so. So we have Ned sort of in his own head. And sure enough, there's a soft rap on his door. A stranger is here to see him. It's someone who he has no idea who it is, caked in mud and covered in a cloak and things like this. And sure enough, they end up alone. He asks for some time alone with Ned and the stranger reveals himself. It's Lord Varys. Yeah. Dun, dun, I dun, also think it's interesting here. The knock on the door is from the guard and that Varys? was right outside the door. Uh, so like there are other guards down the stairs. Like there are multiple levels that this guy needed to get through that Varys needed to get through before revealing himself. And Ned's like, how did you make it even as far as you did before somebody alerted me? And he says secret passageways, which I think is cool. Yeah. And basically and I'm going to kind of go through this on, on, on the faster side here, but yeah. Varys basically says, listen, the king is a fool and you're the hand of the king. And there's there's so much more going on here that I'm aware of as Varys that I now and I don't I didn't understand what had changed here. But now I find I can trust you, Ned Stark. You're somebody I can confide in. The queen is watching you. The king was poisoned. Uh, you are in danger. The king is in danger. And in fact, he goes on Not to the say- king. John Aaron was poisoned. We'll get to that. The king- Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. They were trying to get Robert. Cersei was trying to get Robert to fight. She was using some reverse psychology, trying to get him into the melee where he was going to get killed by accident. So here's what we know. John Aaron's squire disappeared, like, like, like stayed behind and got promoted to being a knight. Mm-hmm. Then- was murdered, killed in this jousting tournament this day or the day before. In addition to that, the queen has actually, her her intention was to get uh, the king to go into the melee because then somebody in there could kill him. Uh, And in fact, that person would either be pardoned or I'm sure would have been told they would be pardoned or beheaded, uh, which he wouldn't put past the queen. Right. I mean, which also lines up perfectly with with what he's implying happened with Sir Hugh already. You know, it's it's she would tell the person who does this for her, like, yeah, I'll give you a promotion. Everything will be great. But in reality, what's going to happen is she's just going to say, oh, this person killed the king, execute them. And that way it covers her tracks. And of course, we have this story. I mean, we haven't 
quite gotten there, but right at the end of this chapter, we hear that Sir Hugh was probably, Varys thinks he was the one who poisoned John Aaron. Mm-hmm. Uh, I realize I'm skipping ahead now. No, uh, but of I think course, that's... now he's being killed. So so we have this pattern, this uh, uh, this calling card approach mm-hmm. to, to the spycraft that we're seeing show up, you know, once and then planned to do the same thing again. Exactly. I didn't catch necessarily what it was that Ned Stark did that then got Varys to say, I can trust this man. So I don't think he said it straight out, but he he says, Varys says here, the Red Keep shelters two sorts of people, those who are loyal to the realm and those who are loyal only to themselves. And that makes me think that the thing that Ned did here was stand up to Robert and get him not mm, to go fight in the melee. In the, melee. the difference between somebody who is loyal to the realm is who is willing to serve the king genuinely, who is willing to push the king to make good decisions, to do the right thing, to do the smart thing, and who is sucking up to him so that they can advance their own personal interests. Mm. And, you know, Ned here very easily could have been as so many people around him were the guy who says, okay, we'll go find you a bigger piece of armor and we'll put you out there and that'll be great because mm. this is not my issue. But Ned is here, uh, you know, maybe not quite as much to serve the realm as much as to serve the king, but that this is a point in his favor. So with all of that said, and this this is basically kind of what that conversation was, we, we find out a lot of information and a new relationship between Varys and Ned Stark yeah. On the relationship point, just before we finish with this chapter, uh, there's a quick conversation, part of the conversation in the middle here, where we just get a little bit from Varys about what his worldview is. So there's that aspect about loyal to the realm. But he also points out, you know, he is not here to be the one to stand up against Robert. He is mm-hmm. here to work in the shadows because he is not anybody's hero. Nobody's singing songs about the spider, uh, about the spy master. He knows that if he takes the wrong step, he gets executed instantly and nobody will notice or care. Ned, as somebody who has Robert's love and trust, can actually use those relationships, those those aspects of his relationship with Robert for the good. And then we have a conversation just about who else can be relied on. Varys really says nobody. Ned suggests his Robert's brothers. Varys says hating the queen and loving the king are not quite the same thing. And then the others in court are no better. Barristan loves his honor. Pycelle loves his office. And Littlefinger loves Littlefinger. Uh, and then we also have, you know, just a little another piece of intrigue about everybody's on some sort of team. He says the Kingsguard are no help either. Obviously, Jamie is one of them. And he we know which side he'll pick when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also Boris Blunt and Marin Trant, who were both up in Winterfell with the King's Party. We've heard of them before. They're both Cersei's people. She put them in this position. They're beholden to, to her. So there's really nobody to go to here. Ned right. needs to be the one saving the king. And I will add to the last conversation we were just having about Cersei and the sort of the espionage and intrigue that's going on is that the one thing that comes out of this is that it seems that Cersei is rushing to get her son on the throne, that there is a reason to get rid of the king and get rid of the king so that we can clear a path so that her son becomes the king. The Lannisters take over and then they have this control. And you know, with See, that's yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say you're focused on the kids here, and I get why. I, I get why that would come up and, and be your focus. I just want to put out an alternate narrative for Cersei here where it's not about the kids, it's about self preservation. There is, I mean, just think who is it? Henry the Sixth? Who was the guy with six wives? Anna I have no idea. Uh, anyway, it, like there is an easy situation where the kid's succession is secured. Joffrey is the heir to the throne, and Robert still says, Hey, I don't like your mom anymore. 
I'm the king. I'm done with her. Here's the evidence I can pile against her. Or even just she's cheating on me with her brother and incest is, is a sin. This is not something that we condone here. I'm getting rid of her. I'm going to move on to somebody else, somebody younger, somebody I like better, somebody who doesn't yell at me, whatever it may be. And if that's the case, if that's what Cersei's worried about, and that does seem to be the focal point of that conversation, then all of this makes sense, not as a rush to put Joffrey on the throne, but as a rush to save herself. It just seems like it's a lot of very intense actions that could be very destructive uh, for ego and saving face. And it, it it makes me think that there's there's something larger going on here that has to be defended uh, than, than just that Cersei doesn't want to not be in King's Landing anymore. Okay. Uh, so so that, that's kind of where my, my, my thought's at right now. Okay. I, I, that makes sense to me. I have one last question for you, which is how does John Aaron fit into this theory of yours? Did he figure it out? Is, yeah, I like, think he was figuring it out. I think that he was starting to... Okay understand that there was a broken link in the lineage part here that could start to uh tear away at the at the sort of foundation that is the Lannisters you know as as a family and and their role in a lot of the sort of political work that's going on does that mean that Stannis also knows yeah okay I think that's no and no wonder he stays away from King's Landing right like he's hustled out there why wouldn't he take that information you know to Robert, why wouldn't he go to Robert and say, "Here's what John Aaron and I found out," and then he immediately mysteriously died? That seems like a pretty damning case to present. I suppose, but it doesn't seem to have much evidence at this point, and it doesn't. It seems to be a mm-hmm. lot of conjecture, and you know, it's it's uh, yeah. So, and maybe it's his own self preservation at this point. I I don't know, and so yeah. I, I mean, if your theory is correct, then he would be the automatic next target, uh, right? And then Ned close on both of their heels here. <laughs> and to something you brought up on the last episode, right, is that he also has a daughter and the idea of creating kind of a, a communion between his, you know, Stannis Baratheon's daughter and John Aaron's son, mm-hmm. you know. And I wonder if maybe that could even be taken as them trying to do a coup against the queen and her right, you know, to the throne and things like that. Interesting. So a okay. lot of political sort of tensions going on here. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got one more chapter to get through here. It's a quicker one, it uh, is. but we should keep moving. So let's go. Tyrion. Which, which Tyrion, Tyrion is four. this? Tyrion 4. And thank God, because I'm sick of all these wackadoos and wet <laughs> Get towels. out of the capital. Enough oh stocks. Give me a Lannister. There you go. Um, this is where we left off at the end of last episode, right? Tyrion has showed up at a an inn where C- Catelyn is as Arrests well. Him. And she arrests him, basically. She calls to arms those that are in there, and she decides to take him to Winterfell. Yeah. But it's not Winterfell. Yeah, she um, told everybody it was Winterfell. See, you're so down on Catelyn. Look at her. the worst. She tricks Tyrion here. She she wins this one. This is not a win for Catelyn. I, <laughs> I refuse to consider this a win. So I'm going to go through this uh, a Such little. Such a hater. Kind of quickly here. Um we pick up with Tyrion while he's on the road, basically. He is captive. He is held captive. A hood was put over his head. Uh, and they're now on the road to what he thinks is Winterfell. He comes to realize. So it's him and a few of the men that he was with who were sort of like with him that are there as captives. I think it's three of them all together. Yeah. Yeah. So him and two Lannister men. And 
they a few things happen kind of all at once. We spend a little bit of time in Tyrion's head where he's actually doing a little bit of an accounting of what just happened in that inn. Right. And some of the things that he starts to point out to us is that while Catelyn was reminding people about who to whom they're sworn and this, it wasn't a huge, enormous number of people that stood up to arrest him. Yeah, Many most, most of the people stayed. And we hear specifically the biggest group at the inn was a group of Freys who two of them stood up, noticed their captain hadn't moved, and then sat back down. And so we do spend the beginning of this chapter really sort of in Tyrion's head a little bit. He's going through that accounting. Who stood up? Who didn't? You know, the fact that the, the Starks may not be as strong as they think or want to think that they are. At the same time, he reminisces about that moment and how he said, you know, my father will pay a handsome sum to learn what happened to me. Whether that's true or not, we find out later that his father is more interested in the Lannister name than maybe in his son Tyrion. Well, Tyrion thinks that specifically in terms of he will be interested to hear about this and he mm -hmm. will respond to it. It just has nothing to do with Tyrion as a person or his relationship with his dad. It's that Tywin is going to come down with a hammer on this because it is an attack on the honor of House Lannister. Exactly. Uh, we find out now, coming back to the present moment, Tyrion is not being taken to Winterfell. In fact, he's being taken to, uh, what's her name? Liza Aaron's home? Yeah, the Eyrie, which the is Eerie. The, the castle in the Vale. Uh, and and she specifically said Winterfell a bunch of times as misdirection because she mm -hmm. knew that the Lannisters were going to come following. They, uh, Tyrion and Catelyn get into a bit of a snit with one another as Tyrion says... It should be, you know, I'm sorry, Catelyn basically says, the reason you're arrested is because the uh, the assassin tried to murder my son with your dagger. Mm -hmm. To which Tyrion says, and I stand with him, what kind of moron would hand his own dagger over to an assassin? You stand with him now. I, oh, I, how this dare has been, you, sir? No, I'm sorry. This has been my line this whole time. This whole time you took, you took Baelish's line hook, line, and sinker that this was Tyrion's dagger, and that means Tyrion was involved in the murder. You hemmed and hawed, maybe Tyrion did it himself, maybe it was a broader Lannister thing, who knows, but you were sure. I you think were it could have sure. been. I would have understood. It still it. might be. I mean, we just have Tyrion denying it here. I, I'm not saying it's not, but this is, don't you dare rewrite history on this one. That Well, I just want to stress, I think that what I've been saying is that I don't think it's outside of reason for Tyrion to have tried to go through with this. I don't think that Tyrion is dumb enough to have done it. And I think I agree with him totally in what he's saying here. This is idiotic. Okay. Is idiotic. So then who was it? Who cares? Who I care. It was, it was uh, Cersei and Jamie. Like, okay. who else could it be? Like, like, and I think it speaks to the fact of, like, how shitty Cersei probably is to use... Well, and we actually find out in a second, maybe it's not his dagger at all. Right. Like, like that's the line. We'll get to okay. that in just a second. In fact, he says, he's, that's actually exactly where we are now. He, he, basically, Catelyn says, the reason you're arrested is because the assassin was armed with your dagger. And Tyrion says, who in their right mind would hand over their own dagger to an assassin? And what makes you think it was my dagger? Lord Baelish, Peter Baelish, Littlefinger said I that it was yours. To which Tyrion says, you're a moron. Yeah. Baelish looks out for Baelish. Little fingers for little finger only. The only thing he brags about it is how he he took your womanhood. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he had and sex. And this is what you. we were referring to earlier. He's, he's apparently, according to Tyrion, 
Littlefinger has gone around the court in King's Landing telling everybody that he took Catelyn Tully's virginity. Uh, and we've actually, we've seen some hints at this before, which mm-hmm. which makes me believe that Tyrion's telling the truth here. We've seen Baelish make some veiled references to it, certainly in his barbs at Ned. Uh, and we even saw there was a moment I tried to, to call out for you where Sir Roderick has, uh, they're having a conversation on their way to King's Landing about, you know, cat you're going to be recognized if you're the one that goes to the castle and he kind of has this well i heard and then he kind of trails off Hmm. uh, and like looks awkward and so like it seems like this is a rumor that's been circulating right anyway this quick conversation between the two of them and the yelling at each other comes to a quick end because they fall under attack this party traveling to the eerie falls under attack by oh also let's just be clear on this cat denies it 100 she's like that's bullshit. He doesn't say that because it's not true. He mm-hmm. loved me when we were younger. That whole situation happened, but we never slept together. Yeah, she's a but dummy. Yes. She doesn't yeah. think that he would do that. We all know she's an idiot. Uh, um, yeah, then they get attacked. They get attacked. Uh, Tyrion makes the case saying, listen, you, you need to arm us, the ones that you have captive here. Mm-hmm. Three of us plus one person to guard us. That could be between life and death. She agrees to it. And in fact, Tyrion and the others that were with him uh they they join in the fray yeah and, and end up playing a role Tyrion gets a few mm-hmm. kills here yep and then i mean that's honestly i mean to me that's basically the chapter they yeah. get into this melee they win we find out that these mountain clans are actually incredibly incredibly poor people they are mm-hmm. bone thin their weapons are are terrible uh farming implements or, yeah, or th- old or rusted and but they did win. Kat, Caitlin Catlin says we need to bury our dead. To which everyone says you're the worst. Yeah, you are the <laughs> worst. Okay, that is no, not she's, about to happen. This ties into what we were just talking about with Sansa and this. I mean, she has not been in this situation before, and everybody else has. I mean, these are all soldiers and men at arms, including Sir Roderick. She is doing what she would do if, you know, a couple of people died in a fight in Winterfell. She would, you know, we need to take care of them. We need to go through the religious processes. And the fact that that is completely out of place in this context, like, it almost makes me think of Ned, of just not understanding their surroundings at all uh, and and not being able to adapt to the context. Yeah, she seems super sheltered at this point. Mm -hmm. She doesn't seem to have any concept of what's going on, which I think is a lot like speaks towards my comments in the last chapter we had with her where she arrested Tyrion. This was a dumb move. I just don't understand where any benefit would come from this. And I think that uh, Tyrion starting to get through to her a little bit about like, there's no way that you could even think that I was involved with this. Like, like there's, where are you going with this? How do you think you're going to come out of this? And then this ends, right? So they finally pick up. The melee has ended. They continue on their way towards the Eerie. To which Tyrion throws in a final comment to end out the chapter, basically saying, listen, like, this is what Baelish told you. This is how he, like, I would have gotten this dagger. You should know I never bet against family. Like, that's yeah. that's a personality trait of mine. So this is the lie. And in fact, Baelish is not the man you think he is. And that your idiotically short-sighted, sheltered, you know, experience of life is not a benefit to you here. And mm-hmm. Starks are the worst. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I want to add on that. Just we have gotten a couple of other indications supporting Tyrion's version of offense here. So, for instance, I pointed out two chapters ago uh, when Renly wins his bet against Littlefinger, Renly took Sandra Clegane, 
and Littlefinger bet on Jamie. Mm-hmm. And when Jamie loses, Renly says, mm-hmm. I wish Tyrion was here. I would have won twice as much. Mm-hmm. Tyrion always yeah, bets on Jamie. Uh, and so that's just another hint that there was something off here. That's great. Um, I have I have two final things to close us out here. Yeah. Uh, and I, I want to end on one of them, which is going to bring us back here. So I'm going to go off topic for a moment. Okay. There's another thing that comes up throughout this chapter, which is just the rest of the party that they're with. Uh, so they were joined by a number of the people in the inn. We get a bunch of comments from a person named Braun, who is not really affiliated with any of the houses. He's a sellsword. He's just kind of there. And he's kind of wry, wry humor and chatting with Tyrion a bunch. And that shows up. Uh, we also have a mention, two of the, so they they have three people die. One of them is Tyrion's man. The other two are two of this group of three. That It's just a little little fun easter egg they're uh i'm gonna gonna pronounce these not really the way they're spelled to get the point across curly cat larry's and mohor they're the three stooges that's dumb but funny it, like their descriptions actually line up with it too like this was very intentional by george r, r. martin clearly uh, that's pretty funny yeah uh two of them die uh which is beside the point but the reason why i want to emphasize this is just we have a couple of moments where Tyrion is chatting with Bronn or with other members of the group and trying to relate to them and after the battle is over Bronn wanders over to him and says you know was this your first battle your first kills Tyrion's like yes Bronn says you need a woman after a battle like that's Mm -hmm. that's what everybody needs and Tyrion looks up at Catelyn says I'm willing if she is and the men that are around him including Bronn all laugh and he thinks to himself there's a start Right. Uh, so, you know, this is him trying to sow seeds, trying to get people on his side with his wits. Uh, and so I just wanted wanted to note that there because Catelyn's out here saying, let's take a couple hours and bury our dead. And Tyrion's making body jokes. So, hmm. well, that's that why he's the best there. and Catelyn's the worst. There you go. But the thing I wanted to come back to. So we have Tyrion picking apart Littlefinger's story here. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier from a different perspective uh about Littlefinger's motivations and how his interaction with Sansa implicated those but if it turns out that Littlefinger just gave a hundred percent bullshit story to Catelyn and Ned if Tyrion is telling the truth this wasn't his dagger I did not lose it by betting against my brother or or uh, I did not win it by betting against my brother what is Baelish doing like what's going on here just being a shit dude I have no idea Okay. Like why I don't I don't understand what he thinks he'll get out of this or what like like I don't know. Again, I, I feel like I'm getting into a Ned headspace of like just being paranoid about everything. You know, we know Baelish lies. We know Baelish is making like money hand over fist and what's going on in King's Landing and the way things are. You know, I can't imagine that the Lannisters trust Baelish and would say, like, I I, I don't know why Baelish would have any reason to want to send an assassin to kill uh to kill bran like like so i I, he doesn't seem to have any relationship with winterfell aside from catelyn and that's from a long time ago yeah i mean the other question is even if he wasn't the one who sent the assassin or anything like that uh even if he wasn't involved with that plot he would be if Tyrion is telling the truth he would be framing Tyrion, which is Mm -hmm. an interesting question of why is it that he might want to use a situation to throw Tyrion under the bus and what what does he have against the Lannisters or against Tyrion in particular that might be motivating that yeah and I don't know I mean I don't I don't have any sense of Tyrion yeah, I mean we and, haven't seen them interact with yeah, each other exactly. at all so yeah 
Interesting, anyway. interesting things to be thinking about, but I'm definitely, I feel like I'm in the middle of a huge, like, like, a, like mob at this point. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of characters in motion here. Hard to tell what's what and what's truth from conjecture. So definitely interested to see where things start to go. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to do three chapters again next time. And I say that here because that's going to bring us roughly to the halfway point of this mm. book which I think could be a good time after our next episode to uh, take a break, have a quick chat about where things stand okay. and about the different players we have going on. So maybe we can try and sort through some of the motivations or schemes that are that are making you paranoid here and try and like go it. through that. Uh, but yeah, so that's Arya 3, Ned 8, and Catelyn 5 next time. So I'm sorry, all Starks. Ugh, at least we have Arya. Yeah, you like her. I do. All right, man. I'll talk to you then. All right. Well, looking forward to it, Dan. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing three chapters, A Game of Thrones, Arya 3, Ned 8, and Catelyn 5. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast, leaving reviews, and following us on Twitter at Bros with Banners. Please feel free to reach out with any feedback, comments, thoughts you had on the episode or what we were talking about. Thanks, as always, for listening.